Hi, and welcome to another episode of that podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Bo. And we have a special guest with us again this week. Hi, welcome, Sean McCool. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Sean is a very prominent member in the PHP community. Uh, um, I've, I've got quite a lot of time for the things Sean has to say. Um, one thing I admire about you, Sean, is you've got you tend to hold quite strong opinions about the way you think things should be done, but you 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 um, you never seem to sort of scoff at other people's way of doing ways of doing things. Uh, if that makes sense, you don't denigrate other people's particular methods. Uh, so I always think that's cool. Um, the sort of particular reason we asked you to come on is because you recently started. Well, I say started working on. Um, you recently sort of put out into the world to the public a, a new uh, event sourcing library uh, with a with a sort of a, I won't say a twist, but a, definitely some more unique features. Uh, so, I mean, if you'd like to sort of tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, and then we'll start talking about event sourcing. Yeah, sure. So I started working with event sourcing something like three years ago, and it caught me immediately that it was a very interesting way to model. It's very intuitive for me to think, okay, this happened and this happened, and then to be able to interpret those things in any number of ways to solve problems. So a couple of years ago, I started making some videos on how to uh, understand event sourcing, and I started making applications and putting them into production. And between then and now, I've probably made about four or five different versions of event sourcing libraries, and multiple versions are now running in um, some large companies, running in my business, running in some some other businesses of people I know. And I've been really enjoying learning how people are implementing their systems uh, using this code and other code and just trying to come up with new ways to see uh, how to fix things uh, and just coming up with new ways to see how to how to solve problems using events. This current version is really important to me because, as you know, uh, the GDPR is on us now. And it's uh, what I feel is a really important regulation that allows people to have more control over their uh, personal data. But people in the event sourcing world have been talking, okay, how do we handle this kind of personal data when you have immutable uh, event stores? So... In order to solve this problem, I've kind of looked at a, a lot of different ways to handle that. And I think I've come up with something that will uh, serve now and be really interesting. But also, as we use it going forward, hopefully we learn some new things and you know maybe come out with something even better. Yeah, so for I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with event sourcing now because Bo talks about it quite a lot. Um, but for those who don't know... Um, Usually in the case of event sourcing systems, the event store is append only, right? So it's everything that goes in is immutable. It can't be changed and you only ever add more events to the store. So um, you're, um, with regards to the GDPR, we're talking about things like the right to erasure. If, event store, if an event store is immutable and contains personal data, you have an issue in that you can't go back and delete that data, right? Yeah, so actually there's a, a number of interesting things that the GDPR requires. You have to be able to explain how you're using somebody's data. You have to be able to provide their data to them. And if they request it, you have to be able to remove it. And I am really fascinated by this because I feel like this breathes new light or new life into the the industry in a way that 
Um, I feel like we've been kind of like the Wild West and just doing whatever we wanted to do. And you see, you know, problems all over the world with, with data usage, uh, being used in, in unethical, <clears throat> with data usage being used in unethical ways. Sorry. So we've been seeing all over the world, uh, data breaches, data being used in unethical ways. And I'm really excited that now we have to deal with this problem and we have to create algorithms to deal with it. And, uh, this is a real big motivator for me. I just, I want to keep tackling this problem and event sorcery, the new version of this library that, um, it's open source, but it's still very much in flux. It, I'm trying to create enough tooling that allows us to solve for these problems so that event source, uh, system development can be very easy, uh, without having to give up, uh, you know, the ability to provide people's data and the ability to erase it. Yeah. I like your comments about software sort of being the wild west. Uh, yeah, I, I keep seeing that coming up more and more people talking about ethics and soft design, eth ethics in all sorts of areas, uh, especially like AI. Um, you know, what are we actually doing? Why are we doing it? <laughs> uh, these, these are important questions that, you know, uh, you can call back to the Jurassic Park thing where, you know, we're too busy figuring out if we could do it to decide whether or not we should. Um, and I, th I think we've definitely gotten to that point. And I, I almost think the rest, like non-software developers are probably getting to that point too. Like what are, wait a minute, what's going on here? People are seeing all these things happening around the world and starting to ask questions beyond just, you know, the tinfoil hat looking security people that, you know, worry about this stuff all the time and have been for years. Um, now it seems to be more mainstream, even even moving into like mainstream non-software development communities as well. Definitely. I mean, I think even, even without necessarily the GDPR getting to where it is now, um, things like the recent Facebook and um, Cambridge Analytica sort of scandal has brought, even brought forward to the, to the, to the more general public's uh, minds about the data that's held on them, what people are doing with it. You know, it's uh, people are getting, becoming more and more aware you know, regardless of the, what they know about building software, you know, they know about these systems and they know how much they use them. And then they also know what they see when they, when they use them as well. So. Yeah, definitely. I think the end results of say like the Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica thing is, I think it's easy to see now how this could actually be abused in ways people weren't expecting or didn't even think about beforehand. It's all very unorganized. There's no, it's distributed decision-making, distributed intelligence, and there's not an easy way to solve that kind of problem. A regulation like GDPR isn't going to fix everything. Um, most, I, I believe that most systems are simply not going to even try to conform to it. And the interesting thing for me is that the tooling, the, the culture, there, there's, there's things that are going to be changing that are very important even if it's not like we get every application suddenly complying to your privacy requirements, at, at least we're entering into that area. The conversation has begun. Mm -hmm. And there's actually two, two sides of the GDPRs when it comes to privacy information, right? There's the, the processor versus the controller or something. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and I think, like, I don't know much about that at all, but it seems like even that could be like gray areas when you start talking about not not even your personal data, but our, uh, 
say your customer's personal data being stored on some 30 third party server now now who's responsible for it um you know let's say we we use intercom and our users email address is now sent off to intercom so we can communicate with them when, when they have uh support questions well right to erasure how like is that like a chain reaction thing if you delete it from us do we then have to go delete it from intercom and then assume they're going to do the right thing as well like who's who's liable in that case if intercom say messes up is that intercom or is that us well i mean i think that usually boils down to the agreements you have in place with intercom um so a lot of the um service providers are Addition out uh, DPA, so data processing addendums, and which is basically quite often a cookie cutter contract that you can sign. And the contract is basically, or should be, um, a contract to state that they're going to be acting um, to the utmost compliance that they can they can provide with regards to GDPR. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's really hard. I've, I mean, I've looked at the list of data processes that we have looked at the list of uh, contracts. I'll then have to read and understand and will more likely have to read, try and understand and pass on to our lawyers to double check and understand. And it's getting quite exhaustive. Um, and just going back to the data processes versus data controllers, I had a meeting today with them. Um, some uh, data uh, data protection uh, consultants about us and we discussed one situation where we weren't even sure who was the whether this person this uh, entity was a data processor or a controller um you know you're familiar with the way itunes works uh, for in-app purchases so mm-hmm. when when um one of our customers makes an in-app purchase they don't actually buy from us they buy from apple and apple pays like a commission you know like does that make sense so we they pay vat to apple uh apple give the vat to the tax man and then apple like decides how much we're worth from from that and give mm-hmm. us some money we don't we don't get to see the sort of the transaction with that individual you know we we know about the transaction because they're also signed into our using our api and our back end Mm-hmm. But technically, we don't get to see that monetary transaction. So, to me, that makes because the, the the distinction, the bit easiest distinction for me between a controller and a processor is a controller instructs the processor what to do. Uh, the the controller is deciding what to do with the data. Whereas in that situation, we're not really instructing Apple what to do. We're we're, we're kind of asking Apple nicely if they if they'll sort of facilitate money for us on their platform and give us some of it, uh, basically. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you tell Apple what to do. That's it, you don't, do you? You ask nicely and hope they don't raise the uh, their rates. Um, so yeah, it, it it's kind of, um, some of those, those, those distinctions are quite hard to make. Some of them are fairly easy. You know, the data processor, mm-hmm. a good example uh, I like to use is Postmark, uh, who handle our transactional email. You know, we're specifically asking them, send this email to this person. Uh, we're, we specifically understand that they keep a, a log of that email for 45 days. We, we, it's agreed, it's in writing, we understand, it's all good. Um, some of those other ones, it's really hard to get my head around. Mm. So well, let's kick it back to event sorcery. Um, I think so. The key thing is, uh, or that that unique concept is definitely that you're storing personal data uh, adjacent to the event store, right? And how does how does that work in practice? When uh, let's say we get the uh, uh, right to er- erasure request, 
Yeah. So the current model is that you can serialize the events and you could use primitives if you want to, and they just go into the event store like normal. You can use value objects and they're serialized at that level. Or if you use a specific type of value object, you extend a, or implement a specific interface, then you are telling this, okay, this is personal data. And so when that, that value goes to be stored, it looks and says, okay, here's a personal key that refers to an individual person. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take the data here and we're going to store it in a, in a separate store, but we're going to encrypt it and store that in encryption again in a, in a separate store. So now we have in the event itself, the key for the person who owns it and the key for that actual bit of data. And so when we deserialize that back, we go and say, okay, go give us this personal data and it'll decrypt it and rehydrate the event. And then once we have that, uh, that's, that's the whole process around. But if we want to decide, okay, this person comes back and says they want their data removed, then we can just trash their data from the data store. It's an entirely mutable store. So my default implementation is just a relational database. And we trash that. Then when it tr we try to re um, deserialize the event, we do so, but in a way that that uh, personal serializable value object, it knows that that data has been erased. So it's not a perfect solution. Uh, necessarily, but I think it's something that, okay, we can, we can check to see if that, if that data has been erased. We can react in any number of ways. And this is going into production into multiple apps, uh, this year, and it will have probably processed, uh, tens of millions of records uh, or more by the end of the year. And we're going to see this in action. So we're going to have a chance to just, find out what works and what doesn't work about this model and then come back so that when we do the 1.0 release, we have something that's been battle tested for, you know, five, six months in a uh, large, large scale. So when you encrypt the, the specific attributes related to a specific person, um, do you, do you encrypt it in one entry or does each individual attribute of each potential event have its own spot? Like, it, or, or, or are yeah. they encrypted together as a set or not? Yeah. So you can think of it as, uh, right now there's a, a personal key and a data key and those almost form a composite key. So if you think about it like that, and then there's the encrypted data and then there's a separate encryption store okay. with the intent of, okay, mm -hmm. if this gets breached, then, uh, perhaps they don't get everything right. Um, so we, we, we isolate three specific aspects like the, the data the event store, the cryptography store, and all of those things, um, none of them by themselves uh, will expose personal data. And if you don't want to implement that in that, in a very uh, okay. complex, uh, complex way, you can just, you know, just throw them all in the same database. But if you want to take it further, it's not hard to, to, to put them into other implementations or other uh, locations. So I've discovered after doing a little bit of uh, research that one of the major causes of breach uh, is where you have a remote database that somebody just punches a hole in a firewall so that your, your application can get to it. You know, just some developer just punches a hole in a firewall and lets through whatever. So um, 
I think that well, a combination of, of keeping this data encrypted and separating the personal data from the event store, and I'm going to make a, a specific effort to try to highlight some common security problems, and hopefully we can uh, reduce some of that some of that risk. For me, it's it's cool. sounds very one exciting. of the most interesting things to happen to software development for a long time. Um, also, I just really love this library because I'm. I'm doing this like heretical thing where uh, it's, it's, it's both idiomatic, like all the code requirements are idiomatic such that um, it's simple objects. Uh, there's not a lot, there's not magic in the, in the developer UI part. So in the part that the developer is working on and yet there's no wasted space. So uh, when you make an event, it's just dependency injection and that's it. And all of the serialization and deserialization is in the value objects. So you write the tests for that once in, in your value objects, and then you don't have to keep retesting it every single time that you write a new event. So there, there's a lot of really fun stuff. The commands are, are, are completely different from any implementation I've seen. And I'm just having a lot of fun because now when we're, when we're testing this stuff, when we're writing this and implementing it, it's, uh, the smallest amount of code I've ever written to implement this stuff. And I feel like event sourcing doesn't need to be incredibly expensive. It doesn't need to, to require a ton of code and a ton of tests. I think actually it's so easily testable that the, the, the actual test code can be smaller than, than most any other kind of implementation. So my goal is to make, uh, prototyping with event sourcing as easy as possible. So, uh, I don't have to keep doing what I've been doing, which is prototyping an idea in, in CRUD, learning, okay, what kind of operations do we apply here, uh, mixed with techniques like event storming to, to learn more about what's happening, and then ultimately write this, this code base where every single event takes me 30 minutes to write because I have all of this serialization code to test. Now, I take all of that out and make it somewhat magic. You throw the event in there. It just goes away. You, you bring it back. It just comes back. And all of the specific implementation is in the value objects. So, uh, we've reduced so much code from our previous implementations. So I have a question. So, I mean, this sounds all sounds great to me. And I think it, uh, what, what you've described works in my head. And I understand. So do you have any plans to sort of extend these or provide facilities to, to deal with this kind of thing um, with things like projections um, because I mean, it depends on, I mean, obviously it depends on the, the need of the need of the projection and the view model, but you know, things like uh, the encryption is not so easy uh, for view models when view models needs to be, you know, searchable or things like that. Um, and, and then I guess I, I, I assume things like um, if you do have that instance where you need to erase the personal data, does that going to, is that going to mean it's probably going to mean rebuilding, uh, uh, projections and things like that. It's, um, is it, it, is that something that sort of like you think is, could have some model or some uh, sort of a unique solutions as part of the library? Or is that something that's probably going to be a case by case and you have to deal with that as you go? So these are ideas I've been, uh, dealing with. So these are problems I've been dealing with, I should say. And I have ideas about how this can work, but for now I'm just implementing them in real world situations to learn from them. And eventually something is going to come out some, some tooling to help me because I, I need 
I need the tooling to do my job. So, uh, right now I'm trying to lay down specifically, these are my values. These are the values of the, of this software and to, at every step of the way, really take those values into consideration so that, um, I, I honestly, I don't see a, a way that to make the projections just effortless. And I don't see a way to make much any of this just effortless when it comes to, uh, whether or not this data exists, because you're going to have to know upfront that this data might be gone. You're going to have to have logical branches. And I don't know of a way to just say, here's an automated way to deal with that. So I think that it has to be a, a series of deliberate choices. And along the line, along the way, we might find some, uh, patterns that help us to implement it more easily or provide advice for how to implement it. Uh, for now, I'm just, I'm just learning through observation, through doing. And by the time that we get to like a 1.0 release, we'll have at least some idea of what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, uh, that makes sense to me. It's, it's a quite a hard problem. Is it? I mean, Bo mentioned, you know, that, that, that chain of processes, you know, if you write to a razor here, do you need to go to your processor here? I mean, just CQRS, regardless of the event sourcing, it almost creates a distributed model, isn't it? Your CQRS, you're saying you're going to have a separate read model and a separate write model. So that's two places you've got the data already, two places that need deleting, two places that need uh, privacy uh, considerations like encryption. Uh, so it's almost like you've distributed your, your distributed system in internally before you've even gone out to those processes. So, yeah, it really feels like there's, there's this whole GDPR domain that now splits across everything. And, uh, it's probably, it's likely that we're going to have to communicate, okay, this person, uh, invokes the right to be forgotten and just all of our, all of our systems and the subsystems that make up our systems are going to have to just deal with it independently. So We'll see. That, that that currently is my expectation anyway. Yeah. So how have you implemented it currently? Like, like, have you actually implemented within one of these live systems that here is somebody who has wanted to be erased? Did, did you do that with like uh, an event on the aggregate where you said, okay, forget me. And then it emits an event and then tells everything to go and clean it up. Or how, how have you implemented it so far? In my experience, what you're having to do is in every single place where that data could be used, have some kind of fallback. Now, I'm very open to there being emergent ways of handling this. But right now, everything that we do where personal information is used has a fallback just in case it's not being uh, use. Then we, we admit an event saying, okay, they've invoked this right. And then the projections have to, they're also, they're also specific. So maybe in this projection, we just remove it a record. Maybe in this projection, we move a hundred records and maybe in this projection, we mm -hmm. clear a field or, um, change a field to, um, it. erased or forgotten. Every single thing is different. And I believe that this is a real challenge that is not exactly going to go away. I just don't think that there's a simple solution for this. Yeah, I think you, I mean, th mm -hmm. that's, you hit the nail on the head there for, like, just in terms of how um, uh, we're doing things, uh, things we've discussed today, you know, you, you, we discussed like a data subject today, and then we obviously there's data sets for the, all the different information you have on that subject and the retention periods for each different piece of information is completely different depending on, <laughs> The, the state of the, the our relationship with that subject, you know, things will keep certain things for, I mean, the, the, the golden one is in the UK, um, the tax man can 
uh, inquire about things uh, for the past six years, and that goes by the nearest tax year. So the rule general in the UK is for tax purposes, you'll keep financial records for seven years. Um, do you need to keep a person's, uh, well, as an extreme example would be genetic data just because they've bought uh, a DNA test from you? No, you don't. So the genetic data can go immediately, but you're going to say, well, yeah, we've erased this data here or this this personal data, but the financial records, our dealings with you, we're keeping those because we need them. And whether they stay in projections here or there is, is different, isn't it? And uh, I guess there's going to be, it's going to be quite difficult for you to come up with a, with a one, one solution fits all, but it's probably more, I guess you're probably more likely to be coming uh, showing giving people recommendations or sort of um, solutions as how they might deal with it, but it, it's unlikely that your framework is going to do this for them. I guess right, yeah. Actually, there. This is one of the places where this concept of uh, like a bounded context really shines, because in one aspect of the system, this information is. I, uh, protected data that should be erased in another part of the system. It's just something that's going to have to stick around because we have to have your invoice data, for example. And that's just part of it. I mean, if you, if you read the regulation, if you're calculating statistics or processing st- statistics, it's perfectly fine to keep that data. And so I think that there's one part of solving for the GDPR is actually in the interpretation of the GDPR. And over time, uh, I, f- I believe that court rulings will create precedents that will help define the shape of, of what this thing really is or is going to be. But for now, I think that this is a reasonable start. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, just one thing I, I, I picked up on when I was reading uh, through the, the, particularly the readme earlier, I, I just a, a curious thing, actually. Um, so you link it a couple of times to the, um, the I, ICO uh, here in the UK's website, um, is that just because um, it was the, you found that you uh, resource to be good? Uh, you're based in Holland, aren't you? Yeah, it, the reason for that is at the time I was writing the README, I went and grabbed a couple of resources and put them into the document. So, um, really, this this whole all this documentation is so that I could share the ideas with the development community that I'm yeah. in, uh, the, the development communities, and get critical feedback so i just wonder because i i've actually um as i've read more of the ico stuff uh, here in the uk i've actually sort of grown to appreciate their their documentation on this it's actually been it's actually far better than i first uh appreciated when i think i think i, I sort of glanced at the several hundred pages in one of the guides and sort of like you know turn my nose up at it because uh, it looked like a lot of hard work, but when I've actually sat down and read sections at a time and uh, gone through it, it's actually been very useful for me anyway. So, Yeah. It's like we're, we're collecting a, an entire document of resources that we can shoot back and forth, like the GDPR checklists and all these other resources that uh, are, are slowly helping us build these models into our heads so that we can do the job proper. I, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, anything I say is entirely Oh, likely to be wrong, but I know a lot of companies can't afford a, a lawyer to to help understand all of their system and understand what's going on. So, I think this is just an area where we're just going to have to do our best. And there's a lot of resources coming out, and there's I, I just know that this is going to be an area. There's going to be like Coursera courses or something on this pretty soon, and so we're going to have a, a lot of really great resources. Yeah. 
I think, um, I mean, one of the things I picked up in my meeting today was um, it's a, it's actually a big deal just to have and uh, to be able to document the steps that you are taking um, to be able to say, you know, um, if the hammer did come down on you to be able to say that, well, we've actually been working on this every day for the past three months. You know, these are the, these are the things we'll be doing. These are the processes we've put in place. These are the training courses we've put our staff through. These are the policies we've put in place. These are the handbooks we've given out. All these things um, actually makes a big difference um, because nobody, like you say, you just, you've said there'll be some court cases that set some precedents because at the minute some, we are, shooting a little bit blind uh, in some respects um there's a lot of gray areas you know um there's all sorts of things about justifying i mean legitimate interests is a is a phrase that i hear a lot you know who can justify it's very hard to justify legitimate interests sometimes um and you just don't know sometimes so but the fact that you're considering it uh, you're writing down your reasons um we're reviewing things regularly as well you know we've, we've actually we've been putting down rules uh putting down um things in our information asset register and we're actually putting marks saying we need to review this because we know we might not need it we've we, you know we, we actually know we've used it for this but how many times have we actually used it in the last six months you know let's go check that change it if we need to um and i think that's the biggest part of it uh for me like I say i'm not a lawyer uh but i'm actually feeling in, in, in a lot better place about all of this than i was maybe even even a month or two ago so yeah, I think the more I work with it and the more I learn about it, the more relaxed I get. <laughs> I think that it, it's actually a pretty decently written. I know that the EU tends to make these things a little bit vague and then sort them out later, but I don't think that's the worst strategy, honestly. Yeah, I mean, and as far as a, being a consumer, uh, I'm so happy about it. Um, I think it's great. I, I, it'd be interesting to see if it actually makes as much of a difference as I'd like it to. Uh, but my gut feeling is that it's going to make a dent and make a change. and. It, It'll be interesting. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I think everyone in the world's receiving hundreds of uh, emails right now. Um, I'm, I'm actually quite interested to see all those people who've they've almost opened the Pandora box by asking me to opt back in. Um, I'm interested to see how they come the 25th when they see that their email list has shrunk by 70, 80 percent. Oh, it'll be terrible. Um, it'll be yeah, so I, much. Yeah, I'm actually wondering if some of them are just going to turn around and say, you know what, screw it. We're just going to carry on as we were. Um, we'll see. Uh, yeah, the the likely thing is that most companies won't, won't yeah. comply. I've received two separate email and privacy updates yep. since we started recording. They are flowing fast and furious today and this week and the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be, I'll be, I, can, I can be completely honest with you now and say there's only one privacy policy that I've ever read word for word. And that's our own when mm. I get it back from the lawyers to check and proofread. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's just the truth. And this, I've got all those emails. There's no way I'm going to go read that stuff. So. Yeah, there's an art installation yeah. where they they print on scrolls the privacy documents for all of these major companies, and it, it breaks down to something completely unreasonable for an individual yeah. to read. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, um, I had someone say today about uh, the potential of you having to list your data processors processors, um, but I don't think that's necessary. But 
we use PayPal for some payments and their third parties list mm-hmm. is there's something like a thousand different companies <laughs> because they operate in obviously so many different countries and they'll use different c- companies in each of those like think about the fraud agencies and credit ret- credit check companies they'll have several different ones in each country yeah. uh, so yes i mean things like that. there's no way we can possibly we can audit the companies that paypal are using you know as a, as a company our size we use PayPal to accept payments. We can't go and audit them, can we? It's, uh... Yeah, on the converse, though, I think that by having to audit your processes and who you're working with, we might end up with improvements into the business yeah. process as well. well. I mean, just just the fact that I now know how many processes that PayPal use, you know, that's something I probably wouldn't have cared to check before. Uh, so already it's made me more aware of the scope of PayPal really, I guess is, uh, mm-hmm. cool. Sean, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about since you're on with us? Hmm. So I think that one interesting point might be that I've been discovering over the past, uh, year or so that building, uh, event source systems actually can be a really, uh, quick and easy thing. And mm-hmm. I, I know that the general idea is that, okay, it takes a, a long time and that it's a very expensive mode of operation. And definitely, I believe that it can be. But uh, I think that what's really interesting is the idea of being able to rapidly develop these systems. And I'm seeing in my own experience some ra- improved uh, development speed from using these technologies CQRS and event sourcing uh, over how I was dealing with it in CRUD, but it's taken me years of doing this all the time. Mm-hmm. The, you know, three or four days a week, sometimes uh, most of the time uh, on these kind of systems. And so I think that, yeah, there, there's a learning curve because you spend, well, I, I don't know, this is 20 years for me in, in web development. And most of that time has been in, PHP or C sharp. And basically all of that has been about the same thing. You know, there's a change from server pages to more like frameworks and ORMs and Mm -hmm. stuff at some point in time, but this is a big change for me. And so after making this transition and after spending a lot of time slowly slogging through my expectations and becoming more familiar with it, I've really sped up. So I think that I don't hear this message very often. So having the chance to say it uh, is, is maybe nice, but how long did it take me to get used to, to developing a code igniter or Laravel or symphony? Like how long did that take from the previous mindset of developing these pages where you start at the top with your includes and then do some database queries mm-hmm. and then at the bottom output HTML that took some time to, to speed up. And then at, at some point in time, you get so quick, you're thinking, well, is there a chance for me ever to transition into another mode of operation? Because I'm so deeply c- capable at the one I'm in now. And it's such a powerful medium that I'm working in. And I've been pushing myself to question this and, I feel like the answer is after two years, I really started picking up speed in, in a, in a big way. And I'm expecting to keep pushing this and to keep pushing the tools and to push myself. And I think that this is going to get 
this, there, there's going to be a breakthrough in, in, in the future to me, in my mind, where events start meaning much more to much more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that it's just coming. So just becoming familiar with these ideas and playing with them now might be worth a lot more than trying to, you know, just implement this in your work and shove this in into someplace. I think it's it's fun. It's a new way to to do things. And, you know, I know I know, Bo, that you, you have a lot of experience with this. And I'm sure that um, everyone who listens knows all about this <laughs> stuff. But for me. This is, uh, it's something that I'm, I'm starting to see where the costs can be reduced. So I think there's a bright future here. That's awesome. Yeah. We just did a, uh, we did an episode with, um, Frank and event sauce, like I think two or three episodes ago, something like that. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm actually very excited to see a bunch of these new frameworks popping out. Like when I, back when I was starting to do it, there was essentially just Broadway and Buttercup protects, which was like yeah. just a, you know, reference implementation of some ideas. <laughs> um, so, you know, kind of coming off of those and not really having a chance to keep continuing to iterate on, on the ideas that you're, you're working with. It, 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 it does feel very, uh, complicated and sticky and more work than it needs to be. Um, so it's very exciting for me to see some of these new things pop up. Makes me want to get my hands dirty and, and start playing with them because it does look like like the UX is a lot different than it was before. Uh, there's a lot easier ways for people to jump in and maybe just do event sourcing and you don't have to go all in on event sourcing and CQRS. So yeah, it, it seems like it's uh, been a really interesting two or three years um, basically since... Uh, Broadway sort of published um, their stuff. So there's, there's a lot of options out there now for people, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And they're going to start springing up like weeds. Yep. I tell you, it's going to be a, a, a renaissance and so many ideas are going to come into play. Mm-hmm. There's going to be cross pollination and it, it's going to be, yeah, it's just I really exciting. It's cool. um, just while we're on this uh, briefly, I, um, I, had a, I, I don't do event sourcing, Sean, but um, I do, uh, and have recorded events for a long time. Um, I've raised, my domain model raises events, and I was shoving them in a, in a in a database, not not specifically an event store, but well, I could call it that. But it was within a database, and I was doing it just for the audit trail for for us to sort of uh-huh. uh, long before I understood yeah. or I knew anything about event sourcing. But just um, the other day, um, well, last week, um, uh, the CEO came to me and asked me if I could provide some statistics. Um, and it was a lot of point in time based statistics on the state of accounts in our system. It was literally the kind of like at this month of this year, how many members did we have? How many were premium members? How many people upgraded in that month? How many people had their membership expire in that month? How many people closed their account in that month? All these kinds of things. And I didn't have that data, but I did have, and I looked and I was, I was surprised actually when I looked back in the, the, the event store, and to see that I had events around this kind of thing since 2000 to just the beginning of 2011. And, and it wasn't hundred percent accurate because this isn't the events aren't, you know, the, the, the source of truth for my system. It's a lot of traditional CRUD type stuff, uh, you know, traditional database records, but the events were there and, um, the statistics I generated were within definitely, I could, I was confident to say they were within 0.5% of what they would have been. 
uh, all the way back to 2011. Um, and then that's the kind of thing that every now and then I get these reminders of how, well, if I was in a fully event source system, you know, the power that I'd have there of being able to generate literally point in time statistics right down to the second for the past seven years. Um, mm-hmm. Data that we didn't think we had when all of a sudden, you know, I mean, it took a good few hours of processing and, and stuff, but it was uh, fantastic. And it was a really sort of made me, made me smile. I think, uh, was what it was. Cool. Yeah. That sounds like a great strategy. Uh, y- you get a lot of the benefit of event sourcing without a lot of the, the difficulty, I guess. Um, and a lot of systems, I mean, the kind of systems that are fully event sourced really are, are probably something like a, a microservice or a small service that's off doing something. A lot of times, you know, you, you don't have the full thing event sourced. You, for example, user authentication and stuff like this. And you're always kind of on this edge where your, your event events as a source of truth system is interacting with this mutable, this mutable bit. Um, but I think that it's really interesting that as you start to work with event sourcing, it becomes very clear where you can get away not doing that. And at the beginning, I intentionally made all these little side projects to just event source literally everything. And that taught me so mm. much about what not to use it <laughs> nice. for. That's cool. But what a privilege, privilege to have right. that kind of spare yeah, time. I, I've been looking at that on my own too. And every once in a while, I think both Dave and I kick ourselves for not being able to work as much on side projects or, you know, dabble on, on hacking some new, new idea or concept. And I, I definitely have less time now than I did say three years ago <laughs> to, to kind of explore on some of these yeah, things. It's, it's interesting though, because sometimes you, your work literally takes you to these places. I, I said to you at the start of the year, but I mm-hmm. was, I was, I really wanted to get into a bit more of the uh, infosec stuff and just, mm-hmm. um, the we've um we've got uh, security researchers volunteers you know reporting bugs to us uh now um and i'm learning about sort of vulnerabilities that i'd never have learned about um if, if i'd had to go look for them myself necessarily i guess uh you know the things that i, I was aware of that happened you know um like dns takeovers and things like this mm-hmm. i so even though I've not really carved out any time to learn about that stuff myself, it's just naturally my career's taken, my, my job's taken me in that direction. Same with the GDPR stuff. I'm learning some stuff about security that I probably wouldn't have learned or I might have gone if, I, if I'd found the time yeah. otherwise, but it's actually just nice that it's coming up in my job. So that's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. I went to a, um, a meetup last Monday. It was the first meetup I've been into in quite a while and it was a talk on hacking and i really didn't expect to find out anything interesting um i just thought okay well someone's gonna go through some weird wordpress hacks or something like that i was completely blown away um by some of the tools like some of the oasp tools that like this is a security person who's a good guy (laughs) and these are the tools that he has available what 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 is it that you know, the black hat hackers have oh, access yeah. to, <laughs> I mean, he did this, uh, did a blind SQL injection attack and was able to, uh, this, this was a tool, a standardized tool that automatically was able to determine which field potentially had a uh, SQL injection attack was then able to determine what kind of SQL database it was, um, based on, you know, which SQL responses returned, you know, data that it wanted or not. Um, 
it then guessed at database table names to find users and started listing users and passwords that it cracked in in a matter of like yeah. 30 seconds. Uh, I just was like, it was very eye-opening for me to see that it isn't just, you know, people just, you know, randomly guessing these things and maybe they're going to hit your site. It's like, if they hit your site, they're going to get you. <laughs> um, if there is something wrong, they're just, they're, yeah. they're going to get you. Um, so yeah, that, that whole thing is just amazing. So if you're dealing with that, that the opposite side of that, I, I can't imagine <laughs> having to spend time hardening one of those. Yeah, systems. Definitely. It, but it's all worth it. It's, most of well, most yeah. of it's worth it. So yeah. Right then, should we, should we should we call that a day then? Uh, thanks, Sean, for coming on. It's been great. Um, I'm look, looking forward to seeing how this uh, library develops and uh, and also the uh, I wouldn't say propaganda around it. I'd say the the uh, educational material you're going to be putting out around it because uh, it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. But it's going to be good fun. Well, thanks for having me. All right, we'll call this one a wrap. You've been listening to that podcast with Bo and Dave. You can find Bo on Twitter and Google Plus at Bo Simonson and Dave on Twitter at Dave Development. You can subscribe to this podcast and review it on iTunes. If you'd like to review us but don't feel like we've earned five stars, email us so that we can talk about your issues. You can also subscribe to this podcast with RSS from our website, thatpodcast.io. From our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter to get super secret extra content from Bo and Dave sent directly to your inbox. Like the music? You can thank Gorillo for allowing us to sample the track Dust Kingdom for our intro and outro. You can find Dust Kingdom and other tracks by Grillo at grillo.bandcamp.com, spelled G-R-I-L-L-O.